All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 20th Century Movie Club. My name is Dana, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, Mike. How are you today? I am doing well, Dana. Thank you. Excellent. Welcome. Happy to have you back. So this is going to be volume 10. But what's interesting about this is, I guess, in the spirit of Avengers Endgame and other time travel movies, you and I have decided to travel back in time since we've actually already recorded volume 11. So this is a little interesting quagmire we find ourselves in. We loaded up on Pym Particles, we dove into the quantum realm, we navigated it, and we came out ahead of uh, episode 11 uh, so that we could fix this, you know, break in the time stream. Uh, So after we're done recording this, the time stream will be set correct and everything will be all right again. We're just doing our part. It's the best we can do. We're saving the damn universe (laughs) out here. That's what we do for you people. We (laughs) save the universe. So what we're going to do with volume... Now, the reason... I'll just just be... I put it out there. The reason why we recorded volume 11 is we had an opportunity to have Jay Skipworth on the show and Jay was a fantastic guest and we're really looking forward to having him back on soon. But Mike and I needed to to set a little more time aside because with every 10th episode of the 20th Century Movie Club, we're going to be recording our guests, uh, our reactions to the movies that we have not seen. As listeners of this entire series will know that every once in a while, it seems especially with me, a lot of movies seem to fall through the cracks. So we needed a little more time, or at least I know I needed a little more time to get caught up on a few more movies before we could technically record volume 10. But here we are, Volume 10. This is going to be Mike and I's reactions to some of the movies that we have not seen on the 20th Century Movie Club. What we both did was during this ongoing series, we both started to compile a list of the films that we haven't seen. This is our opportunity to go over that list. So, Mike, I'm going to start with you. What is the first film on your list of the films that you hadn't seen yet? So I'm actually going to cheat just a little bit here at the start and talk about two movies at the same time. One is one that I had never seen. One is one that I hadn't seen since I was a a wee lad. Um, And so the two movies and they're tied together because they both star the same actor. So the first two movies I kind of want to talk about from my list are uh, National Lampoon's Vacation and Funny Farm. Both of these were highly recommended by you, Dana. um, And you know how much I hate to not like things. So uh, (laughs) this is going to be a a bit difficult for me. But I think I've also been pretty upfront about comedy is not necessarily my forte. And I've, I've sort of been pretty upfront about how Chevy Chase isn't really my forte. And I'm kind of sad to say that neither of these movies convinced me otherwise. Uh, I'll start kind of talking about Funny Farm because that's the one I hadn't seen. I, I, I objectively, I can see that there's some value in the movie and why people would like it and why you recommended it. I remember you and Adam Risky talking about it and you both really liked it. For me, it just didn't work. It, it didn't work on me. I'm not even saying it doesn't work as a movie, but it didn't work on me. Vacation worked a little better on me because of the supporting cast and the fact that it's Harold Ramis. But at the end of the day, I think I just have to accept and and I'm going to get blasted on Twitter for this. I know it, but I think I just have to accept I don't like Chevy Chase. He doesn't I don't respond to him personally. I don't find him that funny. And I kind of just find his characters come across like dicks, but not 
charming dicks, just sort of dick dicks. And so the movies kind of fell flat for me. I'm glad I, I'm glad I watched them slash rewatched Vacation since I hadn't seen that in probably 30 years. But I have to say both of them kind of fell flat for me. And I know these were strong recommendations for you. Hopefully that doesn't offend or upset you in any way. Well, no, it doesn't. I'm, I'm happy to hear that you give the slight edge to Vacation, which I would easily put in one of my, if I was to ever compile a list of my top 10 favorite comedies of all time, I'm, I know that would make the list, without a doubt. Where on the list, I'm not sure, but I know it would make the list. But, you know, something you said really kind of struck a chord with me. When I think about what are some of my favorite parts of the movie Vacation, it's clearly the supporting cast. It's the Randy Quaid. It's, you know, it's the kids. It's it's Aunt Edna. It's everybody else. You know, Chevy Chase does have his moments in that movie. And, you know, I'll, I think I'm going to be far kinder to him than you are. With Funny Farm, that's a movie that I, I did. I just re- recently rewatched it. And I still... I find a lot of merit in it. And I, I like Chevy Chase in this one because I think he's, you know, the way you described him sort of as a, as a dick, you know, and I can see that in movies like Fletch, which I really like. And I can see that a little bit in Vacation. I don't see that in Funny Farm. I, I see a I see a really likable guy in the film. And I also, again, I mentioned that, you know, Funny Farm is a PG rated movie. And I, I, I found the comedy, for lack of a better term, in some parts to be rather wholesome and, you know, kind of screwball type of comedy. Nothing raunchy or nothing edgy, uh, except for one part, of course. But but, uh, but that's okay. I mean, that's all right. I mean, this is why we have these discussions. Well, and the thing is with comedy is it's so, more than any other genre, it's so personal. It's so, look, trust me, even though I'm kind of not the comedy guy, I've got some insanely, quote unquote, terrible comedies that I love. You know, if it fit in our, our guidelines, I would absolutely recommend Dude, Where's My Car? And that is not a movie that I can in good conscience say anybody should absolutely watch ever. But that movie totally worked on me. Sean William Scott works on me in damn near every movie he's in. And I can't articulate it and I can't explain it, you know. And so, so much of comedy is just a personal gut reaction. That's why I don't want to say they're bad movies. And, I, and I'm very clear to people that are listening that love these movies, especially Vacation, because I know I'm really kind of going out on a limb here saying I don't like Vacation. I am very careful to say they're not bad movies. I'm not criticizing them as movies. I'm just simply saying that for me, they did not work on me. I think other people, they might work on just fine because that's the nature of comedy. That's how comedy works. I agree. And that's, I think, a perfect segue into the first film that's on my list because it is another comedy from the 1980s. And this one was recommended by you on volume two, going all the way back to volume two of the 20th Century Movie Club. And that was the 1985 film starring John Cusack entitled Better Off Dead. I remember when we were talking about it, I I said, you know, this is a movie that just, I I hate to keep using the the same term, but fell through the cracks, but it is one that just kind of fell through the cracks. And, you know, I, I just never got around to watching it. So I finally did sit down to watch it. Now, Mike, here's the thing about this movie. The entire time I'm watching it, I keep saying to myself, I've seen this before. And I don't mean that I've seen the movie before. I kept saying to myself that I've seen this before from the animation to the outlandish bits and comedy routines and off the wall humor that just sort of comes out of nowhere. I kept saying to myself, I've seen this before, but I've never seen this movie. And then halfway through the movie, I I sort of just stood up and I said, one crazy summer. This movie reminds me of one crazy summer, another John Cusack film that came out a year later. 
And I pause the movie and I start one on idea IMDb. And of course, I'm sure you are aware, same writer director. Yep. So I was, but that was what was killing me. It was like, I was like, wait a second. I've seen this before. This style of humor, it was so unique. And I just couldn't, it was, it was actually uh, sort of taking me out of the movie to the point where I was like, I've seen this, this has been, this has been ripped off somewhere, or this is ripping off a movie I've seen. It really, it was interesting. With Better Off Dead, I thought there was a lot of interesting laugh out loud moments, but I also thought it was a movie that was so off the wall, yet when it was time to get serious, particularly with the ski scenes, it it basically told the audience, all right, stop laughing. Now it's time to get serious. See how badass these guys are? Okay, it's time to laugh again. Whereas with One Crazy Summer, I think he pumped the brakes a little bit on the idea of let's get serious and let's just have a crazy, wacky time. So I don't want to compare the two movies, but I can tell you that I enjoyed One Crazy Summer more than this movie. And I think this was the director sort of finding his feet. What are your thoughts on One Crazy Summer? I like One Crazy Summer. I don't I I'm kind of the opposite. I like Better Off Dead more than One Crazy Summer because I do kind of like those tonal shifts in Better Off Dead Uh, that you're right. He doesn't really do in One Crazy Summer. And so I kind of like those. Those appeal to me a bit more. I think, oh, the cast by and large appeals to me a bit more in Better Off Dead. I'm a big Savage Steve Holland mark. Like, I like almost everything he does. Um, And so I'm never really going to say I don't like any of his stuff. It's just a matter of degree. But I like it all because, again, going back to what we said about, you know, Vacation and Funny Farm, his style of humor really, really works on me, Uh, regardless of whether it's him and Cusack or not. You know, I I think arguably his best movie is actually his third one that's called How I Got Into College. The problem is, is it doesn't have John Cusack in it. I can't even remember the name of the, the main actor, but he doesn't he doesn't have the same presence that Cusack has. So like on the script, I almost think how I got into college is his best movie, but it doesn't work as well because he that pairing of him and Cusack. And and to be honest with you, it was a volatile pairing. If you've done any research on both of these movies, by the time they both came out, Cusack was not a fan of Savage Steve Holland. He's since walked that back, but he really legitimately thought that um you know, this was going to ruin his career. Better Off Dead was going to be the end of his career. So it's not, you know, and I, I kind of talked about it when I recommended it. It's not necessarily a movie for everybody. And if your entry point was One Crazy Summer, because they are so similar, I could see where you'd like that one better. Because for me, Better Off Dead was my entry point. I, I saw One Crazy Summer well after I saw Better Off Dead. Um, and so that's why I've always liked that one better. What I did like about the movie was, and even with One Crazy Summer, there is, it's one of those movies where there's so many jokes happening, both in front of you and subtly, that I think it requires, it will require multiple viewings for me to, to pick them all up. Looking at the scene where he's, he pulls up in his car next to the two guys, and the guy's doing the sort of the Howard Cosell voice. And he's always racing them, but he always gets into, gets into an accident with the guy in the pickup truck. And, you know, the first time he gets out of the pickup truck, you're like, oh, that's the guy from Porky's. And then you realize later when he opens up the truck door, he's got, you know, the pig on the thing. Like, and it's just sort of like those subtle things where, like, if you've seen Porky's, you're going to get the joke. But if you haven't seen it, that joke's going to fly right over your head. So I liked the fact that those movies, the movie was sort of filled with a lot of those in jokes. Yeah, I mean that and that's that's part of it is one of those movies that the jokes it's almost it's not a Zucker Zucker and Abrams movie, but it almost feels like it in that the jokes are coming so fast and they're so 
They are so absurd. You know, the this isn't really a spoiler because it's on the basically the back of the box that, you know, the number of times that Cusack's character, that Lane tries to kill himself and the way that that, and it sounds terrible to say that, but like the movie's so absurd and how it handles it. There's just jokes coming uh, about all of that stuff. And, and his family is, you know, insanely, uh, for me, insanely hilarious. But I could also see how that, would be off-putting, you know, and I, I know you're not saying necessarily that it's off-putting, but, you know, if people do decide to watch it, like, it might be off-putting for you. It's not uh, a traditionally structured comedy by any means. What's uh, number two on your list? So the next one I want to talk about is one that you recommended in volume three, and it's one that I had never seen, had always wanted to, and it is the uh, 1980 film, The Final Countdown. You recommended it based on sort of the plane scenes and the the way the practical aerial stunts were done and you really kind of talked it up and i gotta tell you man you weren't kidding like there is some incredibly well done aerial combat in this in this movie um you mentioned i remember you mentioned sort of and again it's not really a spoiler because if you know the plot which we did talk about in volume three a modern aircraft carrier gets sent back in time to pearl Harbor to just before pearl harbor and there there are all these combat scenes between modern F-14s and Japanese World War II Mitsubishi Zeros. And, you know, I did some research after watching it and some behind the scenes stuff. And yeah, I mean, they literally were flying F-14s and Mitsubishi Zeros and trying to film these two completely incompatible planes together in dogfighting scenes. And the movie itself is, I felt like, a little bit slow, a little turgid, but... The aerial scenes are just absolutely outstanding. And it really made me miss dogfighting in movies. We really just don't get dogfights in movies anymore. And it saddens me because dogfighting in movies is one of my, you know, it's one of the things that Star Wars used to do so great was all the the dogfighting. Those were in space. But, you know, two planes flying through the air at Mach whatever, trying to blow each other out of the sky is kind of just pure entertainment right to 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 borrow a phrase from from elric kane and brian sauer it's pure cinema it's a thing that most of us can't experience in our everyday life and so seeing it on screen is just a delightful fun thing to do so i i have to agree with the recommendation dan i i dug the final countdown i i I think it's one that people if you haven't seen it uh by all means you should watch it the thing about that is uh you know, I just, as you're talking about it, I'm going, they're making a new Top Gun movie. It's it's already in production. It's going to be called Top Gun Maverick. Tom Cruise is in it. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying to myself, well, I'm 99% sure this is going to be, majority is probably going to be done CGI. I mean, unless the Navy's getting involved. I mean, I mean, maybe I'm speaking out of turn here, but uh, there's a part of me that thinks we're never going to see things like we saw in the final countdown or Top Gun ever again, practical aerial footage. I mean, why would you do that when you can just CG it now? And and if you're the military, why would you authorize it? I mean, we're, you know, Tomcats, F-14s were expensive enough, but now, you know, we're talking about F-22s and planes that cost damn near a billion dollars. And I'm not in the military, so don't quote me on the cost. But, you know, we're we're talking substantial expense for these planes. Why would you risk, if you're the military, a a film crew inadvertently wrecking one of these things when 
they can sit at a computer and generate one. The thing is for me with the new Top Gun, one thing I will say that I think is going to be a benefit for it that I'm kind of looking forward to is it's scripted by Christopher McQuarrie, uh, which if you've seen his Mission Impossible movies, dude knows how to write an action movie. But two... What I'm less concerned about, because, you know, so much of Star Wars was was effects. And, and yeah, they were the originals. They were practical in that they were models. But what I miss is is so much of what makes a good dogfight is the choreography, not so much whether it's practical or, or CGI. So if we get good dogfight choreography in Top Gun, I'm not going to worry too much that it's CGI. I'm just worried we're not even going to get good dogfight choreography. We're, we're just going to get, you know... Crap, we're going to get really fake looking planes flying through the air. So I do have some concerns about that. That's fair enough. Yeah. Now, what did you think of the nice little uh, without getting into the spoilers, but there's a nice little aha moment that happens at the very end of the film. It, I liked it. You know, it, it's very much a, a as people that know that listen to this show, you know, I have my problems with time travel movies, but I thought it it uh, it it's a nice touch uh, for a time travel movie. Uh, and I don't want to say any more than that, but, but I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the end. I thought it tied everything together. Well, all right, excellent. And for, uh, so for my second pick, I'm going to go with a film that was recommended, uh, just last episode, volume nine, when we had Dylan Bruff on the show. And that is a movie. I think I caught a lot of, a lot of flack over, which I guess is to be expected for not having not seen it. And that's 1980s The Blues Brothers, directed by John Landis, starring Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, and everyone else under the sun. <laughs> uh, this was a mo- this movie. I'm just going to say it right now. This movie was an absolute delight to watch. The thing, I mean, listen, the music, the dancing, the choreography, the stunt work, the car chases, the humor. And I got so damn sad after this movie was over because I said, they'll never make a movie like this ever again. It will never get made. It will never be done. It's actually, the movie was so good that I I have reluctantly decided not to watch Blues Brothers 2000 anytime soon while I'm still letting uh, my first viewing of the Blues Brothers marinate a little bit more. I it, think that's a wise decision. It was such a great movie and, and it was long. It was over two hours long and it just flew by. And it was just so much fun and so off the wall in such a good way. I mean, that whole scene in the church that with James Brown, which this they just do an entire number. And at one point, people are just flying through the air. And it's just you cannot help but be tapping your feet along. We're watching that watching that scene. It was the scene where they're in the country western bar. I mean, everything. Listen, I'm gushing. It was an amazing recommend recommendation that Dylan gave. And I'm, I'm just shocked that it took me damn near 40 years to see the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know. You just even talking about it reminds me of not just the James Brown scene, but uh, Aretha Franklin doing Think in that movie is just, I mean, that would be her performance of Think in that movie would be the climax of most movies. And if I remember, because I haven't seen Blues Brothers for a few years, it's like 15, 20 minutes into the movie. Like it's like it's it's like one of the intro scenes in the movie for the most part. Like it's crazy how good and how stacked that movie is, especially if you like the type of music and the performers that are in it. Yeah, I mean, shout out to Dylan. It was a great recommendation for him to do that. I'm glad that's one of shows to watch because it is definitely one of the movies that I think everybody should see, everybody needs to see, especially if you consider yourself even remotely a... I hate this term, but cinemaphile. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you're constantly talking about 70s cinema is the height of, well, 
then you need to see Blues Brothers because Blues Brothers is one of those movies that bridges the gap between 70s and 80s cinema. It's a transitional movie and it's it's John Landis doing what he does best. Like I said, I think I said on the episode with Dylan, it, my American Werewolf is my favorite Landis movie, but this one's right up there and it's just so fun and so good. And it does also remind you, especially for younger listeners out there, you know, he's been dead before a lot of you were probably even born. The hurricane of talent that John Belushi was. And and that is no more present than than this movie. You know, it was we really lost something special when we lost John Belushi because he is an actor, a comedian, the likes of which we don't we get but once a generation. So I'm really glad you watched this one. I, I think this is a great one to have watched. This is one that is I, I rented it and this will be a buy when I find, you know, the, the best way to get it. I mean, the best Blu-ray release or the best way to purchase it. Uh, this is certainly going to be one that I want to add to my actual physical media collection because that's how much I enjoyed this film and just love the music and I love the cameos. And, I, you know, I'm just old enough to know who a lot of these people are in this movie. Like I, like a lot of the, a lot of cameos, are, I think, are going to just go over a lot of people's heads that are younger than us. But I'm just old enough to say, recognize, and say, yep, I know exactly who that is. I wasn't really alive when they were prominent, but I know exactly who that is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you mentioned the music. And again, I, I know I mentioned it in the episode, but go on Spotify, go on iTunes and get Briefcase Full of Blues. You will not be disappointed by that album. Absolutely. So what's next on your list? So next on my list is, is a, a technically a rewatch, but again, one that I hadn't seen since I was 10, 11 and it was another it was a recommendation from volume three again. Apparently, I, I really zeroed in on volume three for you that uh, it's uh, 1986's Back to School with uh, Rodney Dangerfield. And uh, I got to tell you, I'm glad you recommended this one. So Rodney Dangerfield, for those, again, who are a little younger, he could be he was a very, very funny man, but he could oftentimes be a bit much to take. He really needed uh, a vehicle. A if he wasn't doing stand up like in his movies, he really needed a, a vehicle to sort of channel him and use him the right way. And I'm not sure that there was a movie he was in that ever used him as well as Back to School did. Uh, Back to School really just knew the perfect way to deploy his sense of of comedy and his sense of timing and they were smart enough to surround him with some incredibly great 80s actors who some of who went on to bigger and better things some of whom didn't but i mean we've got keith gordon who you know people that know me as a horror fan will know that i love him from christine it's got william zabka playing essentially the bad guy essentially playing johnny lawrence uh the exact same role <laughs> it's got uh, sally kellerman who's always delightful m emmett walsh who's great and the biggest one and i straight up forgot he was in the movie until he showed up because I was doing some stuff when I was watching it, so I didn't watch the opening credits. So it wasn't until he showed up. Robert fucking Downey Jr. <laughs> just rolling in and doing what he does, which is owning every scene in the movie that he's in. I, I 
forget sometimes, again, much like Belushi, only we didn't lose him. What a hurricane of talent he was at such a young age. You know, I tweeted out his hairstyles and stuff because he's got all these goofy hairstyles and his fashion is just hilarious. But he's so good in this movie and his timing and his delivery of everything is is perfect. I, I really, really enjoyed the hell out of this one. So I'm glad that you got me to uh, decide to, to rewatch it because it's one of those movies I saw as a kid. I remembered liking it and then literally never thought about again. And that's one of the things I love about this show is it's not always just movies that we haven't seen. Sometimes it's nice to have somebody say, hey, what about this one? And you go, oh, yeah, I don't remember that very well. And and it was it was a joy to revisit this one. There's a few things that I, I, I rewatched it again after recommending it because it was on I think it's on Voodoo for free with ads. And so I just, you know, let me, let me watch this again. And it's also on U- YouTube also does uh, has an assortment of free movies free with ads. But if you have YouTube premium, which by the way, I signed up for not too long ago, and you don't realize how much you'll love YouTube Premium until you have YouTube Premium. Oh, I, I agree. I, I've had it for about six months, and it it is by far and away. I would drop Netflix, I would drop Hulu, I would drop Amazon before I dropped YouTube Premium. Uh, like I love it. Perfect example of that is uh, I have a couple different email addresses, and so I've got the YouTube Premiums log is is hooked up on one, and it was like what was logged in on my Xbox, and then I logged in my laptop, and it was the other YouTube, and I started a video on an ad came up and I couldn't skip it. And I'm like, this is madness. You don't realize how much you love it until you you actually have it. So that being said, go ahead. Yeah, and really quick, sorry, and not to be a Google shill, but you also get Google Play Music and YouTube Music, which that alone almost makes it worth it. Like, plus you get to watch Cobra Kai. And so it's, yeah, if I'm recommending a streaming service, I'm recommending YouTube Premium. But continue. Yes, yes. So that being said, uh, YouTube does offer free movies with ads, but there there are no ads if you get YouTube Premium and Back to School is one of them. And so, you know, I just sat down and watched it again the other day and I just love Rodney Dangerfield's character. I mean, he's like the world's most likable person in this movie. He could be an asshole. Because he's, you know, he's a very rich and wealthy guy, but he's such an everyman and he's just so nice to everyone. Thornton Mellon is just such a great guy. And that's why I think everybody just gravitates towards him. Well, and they do such a good job of, you know, this guy's richer than God, basically. But they do such a good job of articulating his insecurities and the way not to get all like highbrow academic. I'll I'll leave that. That's Ashley's territory. But nonetheless, they do such a good job of showing how classicism isn't necessarily based on money because this guy's a millionaire, multimillionaire, probably based on the things that he does in the movie. And yet the snobby professors and the, you know, still look, still look down their nose at him and still treat him like he's less than them. And it really does a good job of getting you on his side as far as that goes, because you're right. He is so he is so likable and he is so nice. And he's such a sympathetic character in this. A couple other things I want to shout out, you know, Burt Young as his bodyguard is just so good. And then uh, may he rest in peace. Sam Kinison having a quick scene as a professor is just oh, it's beautiful. It, 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 It Watch the movie for the scene with Sam Kinison alone makes it worth it. I mean, he's so great in it. It is 
hands down, I mean, to me, it's probably the the biggest laugh out loud moment in a movie that's filled with tons of laugh out loud moments. Not to get too much into spoilers, but the whole scene with Kurt Vonnegut. Like, yep. Where the prof- <laughs> yep. <laughs> I don't want to say any more than that. You, listeners, if you haven't seen Back to, Back to School, please, I implore you, Mike and I implore you, please watch the film. The next one on my list is one that, again, I guess like you were kind of stuck on volume three, I seem to be stuck on volume nine. It's another one of your recommendations, and it's for the 1980s Western film Silverado, directed by Lawrence Kasdan, and again, starring everyone under the sun. Uh, this was a movie that I was, I mean, when I say vaguely familiar, I knew the title. I knew nothing more than that. And I said, I think I even said in that episode that with all the research I did on the Indiana Jones films and all the stuff I've looked into with Star Wars and everything I know about Lawrence Kasdan, how this just sort of passed me by, I don't know. So this was the last of the movies for me to watch in order to get caught up to do this episode. So I actually watched this over the weekend. And I've got some things to ask you about this movie. First okay. of all, let me just start by saying uh, performances across the bar. Are outstanding, outstanding, and I had it in my mind that this was a PG rated film, but this is definitely a PG thirteen rated film because I was as I was watching the film. And by the way, I'm so, I know I'm kind of going in two different directions at the same time. For some reason, I had it in my mind from the way that you and Dylan were describing this that this was sort of a, a comedy. Not so much. Not so. Much. I mean, it, there's definitely humorous parts yeah. in it, but no, it's a it's a traditional western, it, no it, question. And that's what I don't think I was ready for is the fact that it was a true traditional western. It took me probably a good hour to settle into that. But then I think the biggest question I have is, whose arc are we supposed to be focused on in this movie? Because it seems that's that's what I I was very confused about whose story was being told. Well, I think it's a true ensemble. You know, I mean, to it's a Kasdan movie, so I would I would counter by saying whose arc do we follow in the big chill? That's true. You know, it it's a true ensemble movie. It is a movie that is made up of the the arcs we are supposed to follow are essentially all of them. And, and you know, if I had to pick one, I would say Payton, Kevin Klein's character, is sort of the backbone of you know, he gets he gets he's the one that sort of anchors the re- the whole movie and everybody sort of rotates around him but it's a true ensemble movie the idea is every every person in this has an arc uh and grows and changes by the end of the movie so you know i but that's the thing is if you're going into it the best way i can describe it is it is the big chill with guns and horses <laughs> right good, yeah. like that's exactly what it is it's not a you know it's not like um the man with no name where we're always following clint eastwood or a john wayne movie where we're always following john wayne this is the big chill with guns and horses it's a true ensemble no character is supposed to be elevated and that's a thing that kasdan did really well but not a lot of other people do and so it can i get it it can be a bit jarring if you're not expecting it. I like it because it it reminds me so much of the sort of epic movies from the 60s, even though it's not epic and it's not that heavy and not that serious. But where those movies, a lot of them had sort of these broad, you know, take a take a disaster movie, take the towering inferno. Whose arc do we follow in that? Well, at the end of the day, it's Steve McQueen and Paul Newman, but neither one of them is more important than the other, right? Yeah, like there's yeah. no one main character. And Silverado's kind of like that. Um and, and I love it because of that, because it is about these four disparate strangers coming together to do what's right in this town that 
desperately needs somebody to do what's right. So that would be my response to that question. This is a film that I think I'm not ready to commit to as far as an overall opinion on the film, because, you know, watching the movie, there are, there. And again, I talk about the performances. You meant, you guys had mentioned John Cleese, who, by the way, took me like, a, a, like a good solid five minutes to put two and two together that that was John Cleese, you know, just because I'm just he, with the beard and everything like that. I just mm-hmm. I wasn't prepared. And I'm a sucker for everything done practical. And of course, everything was done practical in this film. That all being said, I guess I was expecting a typical hero's journey. And maybe my expectations were going in the wrong direction when I sat down to watch this film, and I think I need to give it another rewatch. So I'm just not ready to, to close the book on this one yet. Yeah, because it's they're already heroes, right? The journey isn't to becoming heroes and the refusal of the call and all the, the stuff that we get from a hero's journey. This is more like a... It's almost like, you know... One of the things, as people that listen know, you know, I love my comic book movies. And, and one of the things that's sort of universally true about comic book movies is the sequels are almost always better than the first movies because the origin's out of the way and you can jump right into stuff. This is almost like a sequel without the original movie because yeah. the characters yeah. are already the heroes. What they are instead doing, their journey is we are we are seeing wrong. We're seeing injustice and we aim to fix it. Now, I I could argue that Kevin Klein's character kind of goes on a bit of a journey because he's very much. I don't want to get involved. I don't want to, you know, do this. This isn't my thing. But for the most part, yeah, you're right. They are already heroes. There's no journey for them to go on. The journey is for which is a weird way to describe it. But the journey is for the people that we don't see in the movie. The journey is for all the citizens of this town who are oppressed and kept down by Brian Dennehy's character. And the journey is for them to see what happens when people decide to do the right thing. So it is a bit weird in that regard. I I think it's a movie that if you give it another shot, I think you might like it better knowing what it is. And I think that's the case. I think with just a better understanding, and I'm I'm all about giving movies... Uh, second or even third look. I mean, the, my opinions, my opinions almost always change after watching a movie a second time. I mean, that's, I mean, cause you just, you, you're able to just t- kind of take it in a little bit more. And, but the, there's one thing I do respect about the film. Again, 100% practical. The, the action scenes were exciting. I mean, everything about the film on a, on a sort of the way it was presented was authentic and authentic Western experience. I just was, again, my expectations were a little bit different. So we're, we'll, sure. I'm, I'm sure we'll bring this one up again. Okay, so uh, let's go ahead. And what's the last one on your list for this episode? So the last one is by far and away the the best one of all the ones I watched that were on my list. It's one you recommended in volume five. It's one that I had wanted to watch, had been meaning to watch, and had just never gotten around to it. And you made the recommendation. And so that gave me the motivation to watch it. I actually watched it not the night we recorded, but the very next night. And that is uh, 1988's Miracle Mile. And God damn it, did I love this movie, Dana. I'm so glad you recommended this and got me to watch this one. I thought this was just an absolutely phenomenal movie. By far and away, I I think one of the best reckon, not that you've made bad recommendations, don't take it that way, but by far and away, one of the best recommendations you've made on this show. If people haven't seen Miracle Mile, like, 
as soon as you're done listening to this, go watch it because it's so good. It goes in so many fascinating directions as far as how you think you know and i had known the basic plot of it just by osmosis over the years because a lot of you know the circles i run in a lot of people really like miracle mile but the way it starts and the way it's set up and then the directions it goes in it it really does keep you on your toes and and really makes you kind of forced to be invested in this movie whether you necessarily and i wanted to be but whether you want to be or not you're sort of forced to be invested because you never know where the movie's going to go what direction it's going to go in um it almost reminds me of scorsese's after hours in that regard of it's just a constant changing of scenarios and characters and things that are happening while you're following the main characters trying to navigate this insane situation and it's like eventually you run into brian thompson in a leotard and you're not expecting that not a leotard but like you know aerobics gear and you're not expecting that and it's so good i loved it so much man i'm so glad you recommended this this is one that's really really tough to talk about without getting into spoilers and this is a movie that i will go to my grave not spoiling for people that haven't seen it Uh, for those that were listening to that episode i was being as super vague as i can almost to the point where i don't even know if i sold it well enough like people you really need to see this movie but i can't can't tell you anything about it. I mean, nothing. Good news on this is the movie is only an hour and 27 minutes long. So it, yeah. it, it gets in, it does its job, and it gets out. And that's that's great in a world where we go sit in the theater for three hours these days. What's really interesting about the film is I've had the opportunity to chat with the director a couple of times, and we still are planning uh, to do an episode. Uh, he's right now in the process of he's he's out on tour, basically promoting the film because it was made in '88, but it didn't have its theatrical premiere until '89. In fact, May of '89. So as we're recording this, he's out on the 30th anniversary tour. You know, going all over the place showing the film. So we've actually had to uh, reschedule about four times so far. You know, we were talking a little bit about this movie and this was, you know, there's that great podcast about the, you know, the, the, the blacklist of, you know, the greatest screenplays that were never made. Right. And, and this was in the 1980s. You know, there's this great article that came out in 1983 or 84. And this was at the top of the list. And I can't get into the reasons of why he couldn't get this film made without getting into spoilers. Mike, this is a movie we got to talk about sometime. We got to do a whole episode on this one, a, a spoiler filled discussion on this film, because, you know, I got to stop myself because I want to talk about the ending of the film and you go in with certain expectations. That's all. Mm-hmm. I can, that's all I can say. Yep. Yep. No, absolutely. It's uh, it again, because I'm trying to avoid spoilers. I will just simply say that it commits to its story in a way that a lot of movies do not. Yes, that's that's a perfect way to describe it. What I will say is I also think it's a uh, – because I can say a couple of things about it without going into spoilers to try and – like you said, you're a little worried that you didn't sell it well enough. So, well, now you've got both of us highly recommending this movie and – Anthony Edwards is fantastic in it. I'm not sure that he's ever better than he is in this movie. I know he was on ER and he was great in that, but I'm not sure he's ever better than he was in this movie. And it's also, I mentioned this with another recommendation that I made, and I do think it makes a nice pair with that, which is Night of the Comet. One of the things I loved about it is it's such an L.A. movie. You know, L.A. in the 80s was just this unique, weird place, and I... 
I have affinity for it because my family used to drive from from Salt Lake to Disneyland every year and we'd always kind of go around Hollywood and stuff too. And so I sort of grew up and I didn't live in LA, but I sort of grew up with that weird 80s LA vibe. And both this and Night of the Comet are such great LA movies. And, and LA now, if you've been there, it just isn't that place anymore. It, it, it's been, it's kind of like the way Times Square has been. It's sort of been, you know, gentrified and it's lost a lot of its quirk and its charm. This is what LA in the 80s was like. And I loved it so much for that because all the supporting characters and everything. It's just, it's such a 1988 movie, but I don't mean that. You know, a lot of times when we say that, it's a criticism or it's a way of saying this movie's really dated. I don't mean that in the slightest. I mean, it's a 1988 movie and you should watch it because it's such a beautiful time capsule of a very specific point in time. So just, yeah. Fucking watch this movie if you haven't seen it. It's Absol- great. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I'll round out this episode with the last film on my list, which was one that you recommended. And it's the one of all the movies that you recommended that I've seen or haven't seen. It's the one I've now seen the most out of them all. And that is the 1984 concert film by the Talking Heads, Stop Making Sense. Now, when you recommended this film... I was aware of the Talking Heads. I knew their single, Burning Down the House. I knew they had been around since the late 70s. I sat down to watch this movie on your recommendation. And I'm telling you right now, Mike, I watched the whole thing three times that day. (laughs) It, this concert, I mean, you kind of explained how it was going to start. It was going to start with just one guy walking out with a guitar and go into the first song, Psycho Killer. And I was so mesmerized by his performance in that first song that I couldn't look away and it just kept building and building and they just kept bringing more band members out. And it was easily one of the, no, I can say easily. It was the best concert film I've ever seen in my life. And it entered, I don't want to say, you know what I can say? It introduced me to the talking heads, really introduced me to the point where I was consuming hours and hours of footage on them on YouTube. They have other concerts on there. And I I watched their rock and roll hall of fame induction ceremony. And I wanted to learn as much as I could about the band. And now they're on heavy rotation. Whenever I'm listening to music with my earbuds, the talking heads is pretty much what I'm listening to. Like you created a fan. 35 years after the fact. That's how much I loved this concert film. This is one of those ones where I truly want to tell you, thank you. Thank you for introducing me to this one. It was incredible. You're welcome. I mean, that's what Stop Making Sense does. You know, there's a there's a couple of, of friends I have on Twitter, one of whom, uh, Talk Film Society's Alejandra Gonzalez, uh, who is a delightful Twitter follow. You should all follow her. She's uh, sick underscore 66 on Twitter. She is, uh, she's a youngin'. She's, I think, 24, 25. And this is one of her favorite movies. I mean, that tells you how timeless this movie is because it, she has no really should have no business liking this movie. Right. But it's so good. And Talking Heads was such a phenomenally good band. And and what really is David Byrne is an alien sent to Earth like he's not of our our species. Right. Because the way he moves and the things he does in that movie, no human being should be able to do. There's a bunch of gifts out there uh, of him. You know, if you search stop making sense gifts, you'll see a bunch of stuff and just the structure of the the concert and the structure of the film and the fact that it's not you know 
Joe Schmo directing it. It's Jonathan goddamn Demi directing the movie. Like it is, I think, the best concert film of all time. Um, and I don't know that we'll ever I think any other good concert film to a certain extent is derivative of Stop Making Sense. That's how good I think that film is. And they were the perfect band at the perfect time to do it. So I'm glad you liked it as much as you did. If there's one thing I want to say before we wrap this up is you had mentioned in that episode that this was filmed over a series of four nights. Correct. Flawless editing. I would never have believed that in a million years unless you told me that. I mean, my hat is off to <laughs> my hat is off to uh, to Jonathan Demi and whoever the director was. I mean, and, and whoever the editor was, because that is seamless. And I would have never, never known that. Well, and one thing I do want to address is Ashley had mentioned when we we recommended it that she felt like there were scenes that she could tell were visible reshoots. That something about that didn't sound quite right to me, so I went and did some extra research. There are no reshoots. Demi wanted to do reshoots. He wanted to do reshoots with no audience and no crowd and basically control them. And David Byrne told him, absolutely not. You are you are going to work with the footage that you got from these concerts. I'm not we're not going to do controlled reshoots. And so there actually aren't reshoots. There's just four nights of live footage and as you said, seamlessly edited together in in a uh, unbelievably professional way. Absolutely. And the movie looks fantastic. And what can I say? Listeners, if you've never seen it, watch it. Put your phone away. Turn it off. Whatever it, whatever it is that you have to do so you're not distracted, do it and watch the film. So, excellent. Mike, well, this was a, this was a great conversation. It was awesome to get caught up. We're going to do this again when we get to volume 20 which uh, should only be a few months down the road at the pace we're going. So if uh, people want to follow you on social media. I am at Hibachi Justice on Twitter. And I'm also, as I always recommend, I'm at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where you can find our continuing. If you're interested in the movies that we talked about today, it's a perfect thing to do. Follow me and you'll find a list of all the recommendations we've made on this show, complete with who recommended them and the episode they're recommended in. So you can kind of scroll through and see which ones you haven't seen so that you can catch up. And I do want to say, if you follow us on social media and you have caught up with any of these movies, reach out, let us know. Let us know what you think of them. Let us know if we've introduced you to anything. You know, I, we've watched, talked about a lot of movies, but I think both Dana and I, you know, for him, Stop Making Sense, for me, Miracle Mile, we have found through this show some very favorite movies. And if that's happened to you, please let us know. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And the link to Mike's social media and the uh, and the letterbox account will be in this episode show notes. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at Dana Buckler. You can follow the show at at Dana Buckler Show. You can email the show with questions or comments at the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. And uh, Mike, thanks for coming on. Absolutely, man. Happy to be here. Looking forward to doing this again soon. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.